it is so easy, David, and I'm sure you've seen this, to just overthink any business, to plan, to test, to have the idea. You know, I hear people on the show all the time, you know, like, I've been thinking about this for 10 years. I'm like, what have you bloody been doing? This is The Playbook, where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is The Playbook. On this episode of The Playbook, I have Michelle Romano, co-founder and president of ClearCo. We got a lot of O's. Welcome to The Playbook, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. How are you, David? I am extremely well and also extremely curious about (laughs) ClearCo. Um, You know, I've been in the landscape of funding and investment for so many years, and I'm always just amazed how the obvious isn't so obvious and how great companies and great founders uh, like yourself uh, see through the normal. Uh, Conformity seems uh, so easy, especially in this landscape. And uh, as it's evolved, this new model of funding has come about. So let's start with, you know, what is that model with ClearCo that makes it so different? Yeah, and let me give you the context of really how we got here, because you're right, it's it's very normal to think about equity investing, I'm going to give you 100 grand and take 10% of your company at the early stage, and, and what we did was, was really different, and so this was so much based on my own experiences, I'm a serial entrepreneur, done everything from build a caviar fish roux from scratch to an e-commerce company that's now public, no one would give me money to scale that e-commerce company for the first five years. I ended up building an app that I sold to Groupon in 2014 and then was lucky enough to join the cast of the Canadian version of the Shark Tank television series eight years ago, believe it or not, when I was 28 years old. And everyone's like, oh, you must have felt great. I'm like, are you kidding me? I felt incredibly insecure. Um, I was the youngest person on the show. I was the poorest person on the show. And it gave me a very different perspective. And the way we film this series is we see, you know, 250 pitches and 17 days back to back. So a lot of things start to like clear. And I was seeing all these early stage companies that come on the show. They say, look, I have this great e-commerce product, whatever this is right here. (laughs) They would say, I'm looking for hundred grand for 10% of my business. And when you ask those founders what they needed the money for, they said the same things. I need it for, you know, Facebook and Google advertising, which is customer acquisition and my inventory. And I remember talking to my co-founder, Andrew, and I was like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world to do something really with a fixed return, right? You know that if you're investing a dollar into Facebook, you're going to get $3 out. You're not going to get $300. And so I came back the next day, didn't ask the producer. I just you know, said, look, I'm going to throw out a different deal type. I'll give you that same $100,000 you're looking for. But instead of taking 10% of your business that I will own forever, I just want 10% of your revenue just until you pay me back my capital plus 6%. And the original founders thought that this was a loan. And I was like, nope, there's no personal guarantee. You know, if you don't make the revenue, you don't owe me anything. And I'm not putting any debt on your business. This is like the most founder friendly rev share you can come up with. And that was pretty, I didn't even appreciate how revolutionary that was in this space, that there really wasn't anything that existed between taking a percentage of your company and owning it forever. And then taking, you know, a bank loan with a personal guarantee. And so, you know, today we've, we've invested more than two and a half billion dollars in uh, 6,000 different e-commerce companies. We're the largest e-commerce investor in the world. We've pioneered this whole category of, of RevShare Capital. So it's been, uh, it's been pretty crazy what, what's happened since then. And in that craziness, you know, there's still doubt. When we come up with 
understanding. I'm a host on many shows as well. Uh, elevator pitch, two minute drill, hundreds and hundreds of startups. And you see those patterns. And many times I was inspired, let's say, to think of a new business model that could be utilized to not only make a lot of money, but help a lot of entrepreneurs and have fun while I'm doing it. You know, every step of the way, no matter how much success we have, we still have that fear that this may just be a great idea, but how can we actually execute on it? What were some of your fears on the execution of such a big idea? Oh, you know, a, a ton, right? First of all, we didn't know this was going to work. I mean, I remember I told my co-founder that most e-commerce companies go bankrupt. <laughs> so we might right. lose all of our money. And certainly in our early cohorts, we did. I mean, we lost 20, 30% of the money we put out the door because we didn't know really what we were looking for. Um, and so, and over time, you just get better and better at that. You know, over time we learned we had to look for a company's growth and they had to be a minimum of $10,000 in monthly revenue. And they had to have really positive return on their ad spend. I mean, all of that. Um, help just get better and better. And that's the good part of data science is, is you can keep going. Um, the other part of doing, you know, people don't even believe us. They're like, wait a second, you invest money. Like we invest up to $10 million in a company, never having met the founder, never having seen or used the product, just on the metrics based on their, their business. And it's 100% true, we do it. But what we didn't expect is that changed our whole portfolio. I mean, we've backed eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. We have a huge, you know, we've backed a founder in every state in America and in the UK, 70% of our founders live outside of London. So it's a huge geographic range um, and a much larger proportion of our founders are BIPOC. We just, because we're not using the conventional ways of listening to a pitch and backing a founder, we're actually using, you know, does this founder have good unit economics and how, how fast is their business growing? Do you think it confirms how much bias is in funding? You know, we talk about unintentional bias mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it seems to me with the AI that you utilize, you've created a completely unbiased approach to funding. Yeah, I think it, I think it confirms that it's there. It also means it's a giant opportunity. There are so many people across the world that have figured out how to build incredible businesses with great margins. Um, that didn't go to the right schools, that don't know the right people, that may not have a formal business background. And I've never believed for a second that you should be successful or you should have the right to get your dreams funded because you went to Harvard or Stanford. You should have the right to get funded because you've built something extraordinary with your own raw hands. And I think ultimately that's what we've been able to show is that there are so many more businesses out there than I think kind of the narrow networks are really seeing. Yeah, you're also kind of an Alex Machinsky of, you know, funding where, you know, he's democratizing banking, he's taking all the bullshit that we've had to put up with for over a decade, uh, yeah. being manipulated with shareholder value as its key component. And, you know, here you're democratizing capital and wealth, but, you know, you're also addressing, you know, the distribution of capital um, mm -hmm. in the system that's been created. Uh, what was the pushback from the traditional, you know, either banking, investment banking, our incubation systems and launch pads? Was there pushback or bias from them to try to counteract the approach that you guys were taking? You know, I think you always get a, a mixed blend of both, right? We had VCs that got it right away. They're like, wait a second. So a founder 
you know, let's say raises $5 million for you, all that money goes to advertising and inventory, then they raise $5 million from us, you know, if like the founders taking less dilution, our capital is actually going a lot further. So they don't need to take dilution later on. Actually, this is a really good deal for us to use this non-dilutive capital. And so we had some great VC partners in the early days that absolutely love putting our capital alongside theirs because it just made their dollars go so much further. Um, and then we had folks, of course, that saw this as competitive, right? We can process, um, you know, we literally do hundreds of deals a day, right? For a, for a venture capital firm, I mean, the biggest ones maybe do a hundred deals in a year. And, uh, and so this, this was very unique, but generally I don't think about um, the pushback you get. I think that always happens when you're building something new and something creative. I think about generally what happens when you have all these entrepreneurs that are getting to build the businesses that they deserve to build. And I'll just, you know, really quickly in the e-commerce space, I mean, there are 25 million e-commerce businesses globally and 5 million of them get VC funding. I mean, that is, that is the, that is the 99.9%. Like we're not taking anything away. We're actually building a better world where if you have a, have a great business, you have the, the opportunity to get a funded because you can just only do so much without funding for your business. And in this success that you've had, uh, your trajectory, which was an obvious hockey stick trajectory from a coffee shop to one of the most successful investors of you know, our own generation, there has to be an extreme belief of self. There, there, and I, I find that you know, I'm blessed to be around extraordinary entrepreneurs like yourself and Cindy Eckert and Kim Perel and you know, some of my best friends that they just see things differently. And if you're blessed to be around them, like I've been blessed to be around you, there's just a different perspective. At what age for you did you have that big vision, that big perspective <laughs> that, you know, hey, I'm not just going to be successful. I'm, I'm going to be extremely abundantly, infinitely, infinitely successful. Where did that perspective come from? Because a lot of times, especially women, and I have three daughters, and, you know, they limit themselves. And, and I've seen totally. it from when they were applying from totally. college. Like my daughter said to me, I can't apply for that job. It says I need five years experience. It is much harder to gain that confidence as a woman, but it is, com it is completely possible is what I would say. Um, and I feel very blessed to be around people like you, where you just have to, when, when you follow great entrepreneurs, you realize they really don't, they don't give any fucks about what other people think about them. And as soon as you get out of your own head about, it doesn't matter if this fails, I'm going to do this. And you actually, here's the other real killer thing, David. I now am incredibly motivated when I am underestimated. I am underestimated my whole career. I have been confused for the secretary. I've been confused for, you know, the analyst. I am still a tiny blonde woman that looks like she's going to be capable of doing this. And I always think to myself, well, look, Michelle, there's, there's two ways to be perceived in this world. You can either be underestimated, which I don't know, a lot of people think that sucks, but the opposite of being underestimated is being overestimated. And I actually can't imagine what it feels like to be Elon Musk. Like you launch a rocket, you land it, and someone's still not impressed with what you have done today. Like that must be an overwhelming amount of expectations. Whereas I'm on calls and I watch people nod or you know not take me seriously. And in the back of my mind, I'm just like, I'm going to blow your socks off. <laughs> and I think that is ultimately 
um, what it's about. It's about taking whatever you know your perceived disadvantage is and making that into an advantage. And I have I have taken that as an incredible source of motivation over the year. I feel I feel similarly very lucky to you to have have been around and heard just people that as soon as you build something, you just hear no's all the time. I mean, we ran around Wall Street. And then I have great co-founders. I mean, my first business partner, Anna Shuley, was so good at giving me that confidence. Andrew was incredible. I've, I've, I've chosen to work with, with really extraordinary people that I feel very lucky with. But man, we started this business. We ran around Wall Street. We did 250 meetings. And we we're like, we're going to reinvent capital for entrepreneurs. And you know, I don't know, we heard it all. Ma'am, you don't understand how small business works. This all works on a credit score. You're gonna lose all your money. And uh, you know, the 251st person said yes. It was our first $50 million debt facility. And um, the rest is history. And then they all call you back asking if they can invest next round. You're amazing. And one of the best things through your situational knowledge and experience is you have not only firsthand experience yourself, but firsthand experience with so many different early stage founders that makes you a well of in a wealth of wisdom for those uh, firsthand early stage founders. What advice do you give when people are just starting out? So they're coming onto a show to pitch or they're yeah. coming to you and, and they're not even to a point where they're ready to be funded by you. They haven't had 10,000 in revenue a month. And what's that advice that you give them to set their perspective because you and I both know if somebody told us what we had to go through to get to where we're at, we're not sure we're going to do it, right? So what advice do you give an early stage founder? Um, number one thing is you have to start. And this is actually the hardest thing. It is so easy, David, and I'm sure you've seen this, to just overthink any business, to plan, to test, to have the idea. You know, I hear people on the show all the time, you know, like, I've been thinking about this for 10 years. I'm like, what have you bloody been doing? <laughs> You, it's, and it's like a swimming pool. You sit there, you know, that water is going to be cold and it's going to be miserable, but until you jump in, you don't start treading water. And as soon as you start that iteration process with the constraints that you have, whatever your time, your talent, your capital, um, you can figure out how to make that work. And so starting, starting is key. And then the second thing is making sure that you are getting product to market as quickly as possible and listening to what your customers say. We all fall in love with our ideas. We all fall in love with our products. And if no one wants to buy it, you just move on. And that doesn't make you a bad founder. That just makes that idea not work. 80% of the ideas that I've tried have not worked. And so moving on quickly is the next best piece of advice I can give. What amazing advice, as they say, the best way to get to where you want to be is find someone that's already in the position and ask them for directions. Michelle, thank you so much for giving us your directions, your playbook to success. I can't think of anybody more capable and prepared.